Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Hello, curling fans, and welcome back to another episode of Way Inside. It is episode number 11. Two weeks ago, uh, I had the pleasure of being in Saskatoon for the SGI Canada Best of the West. It was just an amazing event run by Matt Dunstone. You may remember from my interview with Matt, he talked about it, and and Dustin Mickish and Ryland Kleider. It's an end-of-the-year event for U30 curlers uh, from Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia. First of all, I should shout out Team Brown and Team Sturme, the winners for the women and the men, respectively. Team Brown defending their title, back-to-back champs, and Karsten Sturme with his fourth win of the season. They had a a really great year and uh, brought Alberta their first Best of the West title. But it just made me think about how curling events really can be anything. You know, Matt Dunstone, Rylan, Dustin, they had this idea. It was sort of a baked in the pandemic. Why don't we do more in Canada to support our U30 curlers? And then they just went out and made an event. And it's a great event. Every curler there had an awesome time. It just harkens back to the old days of curling because it's at the end of the year. Everybody's ready to let loose a little bit. It's got a little bit more of that old school curling party vibe. There were some really young new teams in the event this year that were getting a chance to build experience on that national or at least semi-national stage. And it just made me think that, you know, if you're out there and you think curling events could be done better, they probably could be and you could be the person to do it. I don't often make like big sweeping recommendations on this show. I'm not telling you how to live your life, but I think that there is a lot of room in the sport to have a vision and execute that vision if you think that the vision is close, you know, and I think the SGI Canada Best of the West is a perfect example of executing a vision and doing it so well and creating a new thing, a new thing on the calendar that curlers look forward to and want to participate in and play in fun to broadcast as well it was an absolute blast keep an eye out for it on your calendar next year if you're in saskatoon keep an eye out come and hang out at the event if you're thinking of putting on a curling event just do it even if it's just a local spiel just for people at your own club if you have an idea to make something fun for people that makes them want to play the game if you believe it you can achieve it i think there was a poster that said that in my classroom when i was in grade six or something Speaking of being in the classroom, we're talking to Reed Carruthers, fellow teacher, substitute teacher who also curled like me. Of course, Reed did it at a better level than me. That's for sure. Former world champion, former Canada Cup champion, world mixed doubles, silver medalist. We get into all of that in this great chat. Uh, Reed, such an open guy, loved chatting to him. He's got a brand new team. I mean, they've already played a few events together, but coming up into next season with Brad Jacobs joining his existing lineup of Derek Samogalski and Connor Negevin, uh, we talk a little bit about that. We talk about his coaching style. It's a great chat. So sit down, grab a beverage, or if you're in the car, grab a beverage. Stop at a drive-thru. Get yourself a milkshake. You deserve it. It's Reed Carruthers.
All right, I am here with Reed Carruthers. And Reed, we start every episode with the top four. This is a lightning round. Four questions. You just give me the first answer that pops into your mind. Are you ready? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. Question one. Which curler have you never played with that you want to? I'm going to say Nicholas. If all the rocks are exactly the same, if you know that both sets are great, you're happy with both sets. What? Red. Okay. Uh, what's something that's considered a basic thing in curling that you struggled to learn? Oh, picking teammates. <laughs> have, you, have, have you figured it out yet? Maybe not. I, l- I like the current team. This is great. How would your bitterest rival describe you? Crusty at times, so maybe a little bit bitter. That's a good choice of words. So. Crusty and bitter. It feels like the. It sounds like those words have maybe actually been said to you. It felt like you went to a place right there. <laughs> maybe a little. <laughs> I don't think of you as a bitter guy. Not at all. Maybe fiery is the word. I can bring that emotion. I think that's what people love about you. Uh, okay, we're done with the lightning round. Now you can take your time on these questions. You started mixing it up a little bit on the ice. You started throwing in a toque into your uh, your on-ice repertoire. How do you decide on toque over hat? Uh, well, I think I played two games in a toque. Penticton was so cold. Like, it was actually colder in Penticton than it was in Winnipeg, which is just insane. So, yeah, in that venue in that rink i was cold i threw it i rolled with it we did very poorly so <laughs> next year in penticton i'm gonna be freezing but wearing a hat hat no matter what no matter what i saw it in penticton and i thought it was like okay reed's going for a more uh, it kind of makes you look a little more aggressive so i was i thought maybe it was a statement and to go off that that's why we're at coaching i want the girls to respect me so <laughs> the aggressive aspect of the toque is is very prevalent yeah, you're a hard ass. You're a hard ass oh, behind yeah, the bench. Much. Yeah, yeah, I could tell. You know, I've known you for a long time. I don't know if I know the actual answer to this question. You invented the pro slide or you were the one who like made it. How did that happen? Tell me the story of the pro slide because I don't think I've ever heard it. Yeah, so I was part of like the design of it. Um, the idea behind it was was mine. But one of the neat things was like back in the Stoughton days of curling with Jeff, we had a sponsor named Polly West and you know, they're like a plastics company makes a whole bunch of different things, like including like, you know, water storage, um, you know, even like an ice maker pebbling can, uh, you know, like they, they do a lot of like liquid molded uh, plastic setups. And um, for me, you know, I'd switched to Hardline, and at that point in time, Hardline and, Asham, because I was using an Asham crutch at that point in time. They weren't best of friends and they're good now. I said, well, I can't use an Asham crutch if I'm sponsored by Hardline. So I actually went to Poly West and said, look, can we do something? And they ran with it. And then it came down to actually like kind of designing something. And my nickname is Rita Rama. And some people like Ben will call me Ram for short. Yep. So if you actually look closely at the pro slide, which many of you won't, um, <laughs> if you look at it from the side, it's actually a head budding ram. Oh. So, and it was twofold because I wanted to have something that had an arched back yeah. uh, and front to bottom. And the reason for that is I wanted to design something that was good for, for different heights. You know, you yeah. could hold it a little bit lower if you're taller you know, or higher up, whatever feels comfortable. And then also even like when I'm throwing a takeout versus throwing a draw, I try to be a little bit higher when I throw a draw. So 
yeah, so there's a whole bunch of reasons, but yeah, I've helped design that and it's with a company in Winnipeg. I never knew about the Ram thing. I mean, I've called you Ram forever because everybody calls you Ram. Yeah. But now, and as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, it was like finding out the Hartford Whalers logo is an H and a W. It was like, a- like you totally learned something tonight and I feel like I'm going to sleep so much better now. <laughs> And so will our listeners now that they know, too. They're going to see it on the earth. They're going to be like, oh, my God, my mom uses a pro slide, by the way. Speaking of riveting content, this is actually a perfect segue because these interviews go a little chronological. I wanted to start in the 2003 Canadian Juniors. You played Trevor Moss of the Northwest Territories and you won one nothing. Tell me about that game. Oh, OK. I'm going to try to not make this story too long, but... This actually was a really interesting game. I know one nothing like smells like <laughs> very boring, but that game there were so many doubles and triples it was unbelievable. So it started out where we were struggling a little bit at the nationals, and you know we had had this plan saying we we're going to keep it a little bit simple. So the first few ends they threw it in and we were hitting it. We had the hammer. They kept throwing it in. We kept hitting it. By the time we got to end five. We decided in our in-between ends, hey, look, if they throw it in, let's hit it. Let's score a deuce in six. So, yeah, they threw it in five. So, anyways, fifth end break comes. We blanked the first five. You know, we were trying to go for a deuce. I called a corner guard. Well, my lead threw it in. So, they threw it in. We threw it in by accident. They'd go and hit it. We'd make a double at some point in the end. Blank. So, now it's end seven. And now we don't want to score a deuce in seven. We want to score a deuce in eight. So, we he threw it in again. And... We decided to try to do like a delayed corner. So hit it, rolled to the wings. They rolled back to center. So instead of throwing the corner, because they were back in the middle, we hit it and we're thinking, hey, let's score the deuce and eight. Yeah. So now we're in end eight. Well, there's been lots of doubles, lots of great shots made. But now it's like, okay, let's get the deuce and eight. Here we go. Let's go two, one, game over kind of thing. And my lead threw it in again. So now you just know where this is going because in N9, <laughs> you're not going to get four. So we might as well, if they're going to throw it in, we're just yeah. going to hit it. So in N9, we just hit. And then in N10, I had a hit. I had a hit for the win. They were edge of four and I rolled to kind of add, like, I think I threw normal weight. I played an out turn and I rolled, I think like almost to like full 12 on the side. And everyone was like gasping because it's like, oh my God, we almost <laughs> like blank 10. But uh, yeah, one nothing game. We both posed with the scoreboard after (laughs) and i think that it still goes down in history as the lowest scoring game in national history you can only tie it i mean i guess in theory a one nothing extra end game is technically lower scoring but i mean yeah that's never that's never gonna happen i mean that's impressive so do you think that was their game plan too obviously like they just kept throwing it in the house they were just happy to be close with you i I think so yeah Yeah. that's that's what it seemed and And I was okay with winning the game one nothing because we really needed to win. <laughs> yeah, who cares? Yeah, yeah. Win, yeah, a W is a W, baby. Um, no, I love it. I, I I knew about the game, but I had never heard the exact story. So uh, there you have it. I love it. You go on from juniors. You know, you make the provincial final, all that stuff. You're doing pretty good. And then you get the call from Jeff Stoughton. I'm always curious how offers like that come about what was the call from Jeff Stoughton? Had you been talking to him before the end of that season that he picked you up or was it out of the blue? Tell me that story. Well, a little bit of trade secrets here as to how I actually got picked up, but please tell me, tell me. 
was about 24 or so. And I had realized like Jeff was very set in his routine of throwing rocks at the granite lunch hour all the time. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, like let's be visible. Let's let's make sure I throw at the same time. So I would go and practice it like, you know, I'd go in at 11, you know, and just kind of be out there throwing stones. And sure enough, he'd show up with Steve and whoever else. I made myself visible and he saw that I was putting the work in. Obviously, like we played against them a bunch of times, even at that young age. Uh, you know, we were traveling lots. I was playing with Derek and playing with other guys. It was actually Steve that started the conversation. We were sitting in a slam. It was actually in Winnipeg, one of the slams in Winnipeg at the MTS Center. And Steve came down and sat next to me and basically said, hey, what's going on for you next year? And at that point in time, you know, I was planning on playing with my same team. Um, I had just finished up my uh, teaching degree and I was in my first year of actually teaching full time. And uh, Steve kind of had pried and said, look, like, what are you doing? We're interested in you. And then it was like, you know, Jeff's going to call you. So, you know, a week or two later, Jeff actually called me and we had that conversation a little bit more in detail about what's going on, you know, what are your aspirations kind of thing. And, you know, we both kind of matched up with what we were hoping to accomplish and, you know, off you go. Were you like stunned by this? Like Jeff Stoughton calls you, are you like, holy shit? Yeah, honestly, I actually thought it was like at this point in time, like this was like early to what have we been like late 2000s I guess like pranking was a thing yeah oh yeah totally the old like star six nine like you could or like the star I think it was like star six zero or something you could fake a number and even like punch in so you have the cell phone and you have caller id which was insane but you could like pretend to have a number show up so I I had Jeff Stoughton pop up on my call display and I actually thought it was one of my best friends pranking me so at first when he said yeah this is Jeff Stoughton I was kind of like yeah okay and then you know it actually sounded like his nasally voice I'm like oh perfect this actually is Jeff so off we went (laughs) I literally, the follow-up question I wrote in my notes was, did you think you were being pranked? I totally did. You and I are the same age where we, we grew up in the punked era where we're like, uh, <laughs> I totally thought I was getting, getting pranked again. <laughs> now tell me a little bit about the chemistry on that team. Cause I think, you know, I think something we've seen in curling history a lot is you got a team of younger guys and an older player, usually the skip, you know, maybe a veteran skip playing with some younger guys, but you were sort of the young guy on a team of old guys. What was the, yeah. how did you kind of work your way in there what was the team chemistry like tell me a little bit about that yeah no it's interesting because at first it was actually going to be steve and jeff and me and we were going to get another younger guy but jeff had wanted me to play third and i actually put the kibosh on that and said look like if we can get john let's get john and i'll happily play front end um because i like even at 24 i was thinking to myself like you know, it's almost a little bit nerve wracking to play third for Jeff, like going from skip to third is a very tough transition because, you know, you're kind of like second in command, you know, you have to be part of some decision making. But when you're used to skipping at that point in time, I was going to being third on like this high powered team that's expected to do well, I was nervous. So I actually gave him the idea of bringing in John because I knew how well they had worked together and they had had that little bit of a break. And for me at like playing second, I got to learn like a different position. I hadn't played second since I had played juniors. So it had been a while, but like having John and Jeff behind me, I didn't have to be involved in strategy discussion because I had two of the best ever to do it. Right. So it was perfect. And also for them, 
because they had been there, done that so many times over, they almost used the like, you know, we want to win this one for Reed because I hadn't obviously won a Briar. They had, and yeah, it just it just kind of worked. Like they knew how excited I was. Uh, you know, they were getting a little bit of youthful energy injected into their into their competitive veins, and it you know reinvigorated them. And that first year, we spent a lot of time off ice doing things together and like trying to build that chemistry. And like it it worked. You know, it worked really well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, people could see it on the ice. It worked well. What was the like uh, craziest team bonding activity you guys did? Yeah, honestly, like there was. It's hard to say crazy. <laughs> I just think of Jeff as like a straight ahead dude. He I is. Wanna, he is like yeah. he doesn't. He doesn't drink. He's like I wouldn't say straight edge, but like he's a pretty good old fashioned guy that like you know doesn't ruffle feathers a whole lot. You know he might get a little bit fiery on the ice when he's competing, but he's a pretty laid back guy in general, but like we would hang out as a team all the time and like play poker for five bucks or something. (laughs) Just, just do like little things, but just always spend time together in the room and like not kind of go about and do our own thing. And I just found that like spending that time with the group uh, was really cool. Like even Steve and I would play risk until two in the morning on like an iPad or a laptop or whatever. But we just spent so much time bonding and, and telling stories because we were two different genres and we needed to like spend that time getting to know each other. And it was a great way to do it in like a very team orientated way. Right. They had stories about Vic Peters. You had stories about Daly. It was like a perfect. Exactly. No, yeah, that's actually one of the things. Yeah. yeah. Vic was a little bit of a wild child. Uh, and God bless his heart. I miss him very much. He was a very much an influence for me, but Daly is just like second level to him. Uh, and Daly is an absolute amazing human being that if you don't ever meet Daly, you just have to sort, you have to find him in a curling club because he is an absolute national treasure. You go back to skipping uh, after you're done with Jeff. What would you say is one of the main things you learned from Jeff that you took back to skipping after you had done it for so long before being with Jeff? I would say like the the preparation leading into the big events and like just the overall confidence and just like the belief in your prep and and preparation to just go out there and, and, you know, be the man or be the person to go and make those big shots. You know, Jeff went for it. Uh, He didn't spend a lot of time doubting himself and even playing against the best, you know, teams that quote unquote on paper, like a, you know, that we were playing against like the best Martin team, right? Probably the best team ever. And, when we'd go and have battles against, you know, Kevin, Johnny Mole, Kennedy, and and Hebert, Jeff like would do his best to pump himself up before that game, and we would go and have great battles with them, even though that like our records against each other were actually pretty close. Okay, we're reached the midpoint of the interview. I always do uh, a segment in the middle I call Dirty Laundry. This is where I dig up uh, I dig up some information about you and oh, get you to, to tell me. I don't worry, Reed. It's not. Uh, it's not that dirty. It's like lightly, lightly soiled laundry. Okay. Uh, okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> First of all, I've heard about you. You despise being late. And I heard that you are late for a game at the Karazawa International. And I... <laughs> I've heard that's a that's a nice story. Do you uh, you're banging oh you're God. banging your head on the table? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a bad one. That's a bad one. 
<laughs> oh, did I feel so bad? Like, and the thing is, we didn't even have a vehicle there. Like, we were being chaperoned around. I was skipping at that event. Like, this was part of the like Team McEwen Crothers collab, Lincoln Park Jay Z mashup. Where we were trying to figure <laughs> things out, right? Um, it was a real collision course. <laughs> we were on a collision course, and so I was skipping that week. You know, we had Wozniak Sparing. I was rooming with him. Colin and Mike were together. And I was in charge of schedule. Colin and Mike would pick restaurants and do that sort of thing. And like, so I was like, okay, like arranging shuttles. Well, we showed up to the venue. And even though the shuttle like had got us there, we still thought we were on time. And as we were walking into this beautiful facility, because it's literally one of the nicest curling club and facilities in the world, we're walking in. And as we're walking down the tunnel, like even the people at the front, like his in like Japanese culture, even being late, almost like it's disrespectful. And that's like, I hate being late in general. So I was feeling so bad. So we were a good, oh, oh I don't know, like maybe 15, 20 minutes late. And um, we walked out onto the ice. The other team had practiced first and they got to draw. Um, we didn't even get to draw. We got to throw one, one practice rock and one practice rock back but they wouldn't allow us to actually throw the draw the button because it was already past the time. And we, so we started the game probably four or five minutes late and they got the hammer. Obviously the worst part about it is the draw the button was important because they counted all your draw the button. So it counted as a max. So not only were we late, but we had like this 184 milli <laughs> centimeters or whatever added to our total. And it's like, Oh my goodness. Like this is, this is so bad because it's completely on me. And you know, God bless all of their souls. None of them really gave me too hard of a time, but I felt just horrendous. <laughs> well, I had heard too, there was uh, some sort of, um, and I don't know if this was the cause of you being late, but there was some sort of gift off as well with uh, someone you had the, with a chaperone you had there. Is this ringing a bell for you? Yeah, there, there was a gift off. It wasn't for that specific game. You know, there's some interesting things like, you know, in part of their culture, like, you know, we were, they were hosting us. So we had someone that would almost be like our chaperone for the entire week. And he would drive us everywhere. Um, and after one of the games, I had grabbed like this Christmas decoration that had bells and curling rocks, like around the decoration. It was beautiful. It was like 40 bucks Canadian or something. So I got into the vehicle and we were waiting for Mike because Mike's always the slowest one. Uh, we were waiting for Mike. So it was me, Wozniak, and Colin sitting in the van with our host. And I said, oh, I said, look, you know, I was showing the host, like, look what I have. And uh, he goes, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And so he took it and he thought that I was like giving it to him, but I was just showing it to him. <laughs> so yeah, so he, he took that. And then so the next day, when we came back to the rink, I went to get another gift and uh, I picked up the last one. And then on the last day, we had won and we had stayed up like late having fun doing karaoke and whatnot. I actually forgot the gift. Like I lost it. So I spent 80 bucks on like these Christmas ornaments and I even had snapped a picture and I didn't bring a single one home. Yeah. That's, uh, that's devastating. Yeah, if anyone out there is listening, you know, I'll give them my address and just <laughs> ship me one, please. Yeah, I'll pay double. I heard on your honeymoon uh, there was a a bit of a, a zip lining incident. Uh, How are you hearing this stuff? <laughs> like that's supposed to be between me and her. <laughs> 
Like, are you, are you talking about the part where I was up on the zip line after like going twice and I was shaking like at the knees and I had to stop? Yeah. 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 That's, that's she what was I'm also about. scared, but I was like three times <laughs> as scared. Like I do not like heights and I had done zip lining before, but I feel like I was a little bit intoxicated the first time I did it. And I had like that liquid courage. Well, this time I was stone cold sober. Like we've done two of these zip lines and the third one, I don't know what it was, but like, I'm about to go. No, like I can't do this. So she looks at me. She's like, are you serious? I'm like, no, like I can't, like we're out of here. He had to radio down to someone to like send like this ATV to come and get us. And the thing is where we were in Mexico, like on this zip line tour, like it was in the middle of the jungle. It was like a good 10 minute quad ride back with like this guy that didn't want to get us going through apparently like jaguar infested areas. I, I couldn't believe it. It was almost better if I just zip lined. I mean, if you're afraid of heights, like how did you even get, and, and if your wife doesn't like them either, how'd you even get talked into this? I don't have a clue, man. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. Like I may not ever go back to Mexico ever again just because of that experience. <laughs> Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. I want to talk about the uh, 2017 World Mixed Doubles because that was a unique situation. You know, you win Canada with Joanne and you got to go there and win an Olympic spot for Canada. I'm curious, was that the most pressure you ever felt as a curler in your career so far? Yeah, maybe. Uh, That or like the world final in 2011, we're playing Scotland, like Brewster with Greg Drummond. Maybe that final, I was nervous for that final, but actually the, just the event in general, playing mixed doubles with Joanne. At that point in time, mixed doubles, I think it was like 32 teams too. And we had to make, I think, like the semifinal or so. They had told us the semifinal. Yeah, top five. But like Stoughton was the coach and he was telling us, it was like, oh, you need to make the semi, you need to make the semi. But as it turns out, if we just finished top five, like make the quarters, we were good. But yeah, like there was, there was obviously a lot of pressure there. That was fun. Yeah, that was, I like that. You know, and jo- Joanne is like, she's an absolute gamer. Our intensity was high, but we were having a lot of fun. Is it something that going into it, did you have to do sort of additional prep uh, mentally to prepare? Because I, I, I do remember like, you know, when you know you kind of have the whole country watching you, you know, is there is there anything extra special you do or was it just kind of the, the same old? Uh, yeah, there's a little bit. Like I was using my sports psychologist uh, in preparation. We were talking about like what I might feel and experience. And there was a point in time in my curling career, in my younger curling career, where like people would be able to like say things about me and like have it rattle me, uh, you know, whether it was a tweet or a Facebook message that would come in. 
over the years, you know, I've worked with her on like strategies to be able to almost use as like the chip on the shoulder. One thing that I really found interesting about like the Jordan documentary, and I'm, hey, by no means am I comparing myself to Michael Jordan, <laughs> but this is one thing that I feel like, you know, he has done that like I feel like I'm tr- I'm trying to do is you know, he's sitting there with that glass and he's talking about how like at that point, you know, I was offended and, you know, he would, he would almost like build up this persona about this person that like insulted him. And then the next day he'd go out and try to drill them. Right. And I would find like, you know, these old comments and things that would be said about me would get to me. But now I actually screenshot some of like the negative tweets and things that are said against me. And I use it as ammo during that week, you know, we were kind of struggling a little bit early and I, I sent a message to her. I said, look, like this is going to happen. I'm, I'm going to start reading this stuff because like I'm struggling and I'm not super feeling it, but like I need, I need some extra ammo to get me fired up. And she's like, yeah, go and do that. So, you know, some of the comments were silly. It was like, Hey, you know, Reed Crothers throws with a crutch, you know, why isn't Rachel and John here? And it's like, well, you know, we beat them in the final. It's a fantastic mixed team. I understand that everyone wants Rachel and John to be out there playing, but like, you know, we earned our right. And and at that point in time, like I just had that angry chip on my shoulder and Joanne was playing great. And then we just like lit fire. So yeah, lots of pressure, but you know, that was one of the things that I had done to help get me through the week. I like it. I mean, I like the idea of turning the tweets into into good. I think curling, especially, has a pretty intense online culture for some reason. Oof. Maybe just because cur- maybe just because curlers feel very reachable or something. I don't know what it is. Oh, but. Well, yeah, it's because they can sit in the arena and then you know five seconds later they're talking to us as the game's over and you know having these ten minute conversations with us as we're going off the ice because like we are you know we're normal people doing normal things and then you know we might see you in the grocery store or see you you know in the patch and you know we are approachable people like anyone that's in the patch like you know you're going to get approached so you know in general curlers are pretty laid back normal people so yeah we'll have those conversations and I think that also comes as a double-edged sword because people feel like they know us, right? Just because they get to see us on TV. Yeah, I hear that for sure. And it's wild. Um, Okay, I want to move on to the Karazawa team, you and Mike. And, you know, I know that uh, for a long time, people thought you and Mike were going to get together. You know, it, it almost happened, I believe, in the 2014 quad, didn't end up coming together. Finally, the 2018 quad it happens. And I think fair to say probably didn't go the way that you guys expected. I, I think a lot of people thought when you two got together, it was going to be gangbusters and you're going to have a, you know, a great, and it's not like it was a disaster, but I think fair to say maybe didn't work out the way you hoped or people expected it. Why do you think that it maybe didn't come together? Well, there was a whole like whack load of things that happened. Like, you know, like, and I'm, I'm really happy that I did curl with them because we did have like a lot of wins. You know, we won some big events, uh, one event in Korea, one Japan, winning the play event to go to the trials, uh, having a good showing in Kingston at the Briar, having a good showing at the trials in our last year, winning Penticton a couple of times. Like we did do a lot of great things, but I think like, you know, the trajectory we were on was good actually once we set our lineup that second year we were starting to like look like a pretty solid unit i was playing third happily playing third and then the pandemic hit during the pandemic you know like in manitoba we weren't allowed to throw at all you look at what mike and i do for a living and it's curling like we didn't have the distraction of the off ice 
other job to kind of keep us busy, you know, so aside from being parents and being like normal people at home, uh, curling's kind of been like our everything. And when pandemic hit and everyone was staying at home and thus not allowed, like being able to do that, you know, we kind of like lost sight of our, maybe not lost sight, but just kind of lost our trajectory that we were on. And, you know, there were some distractions that were going on, a couple off ice fights with different associations and whatnot. And, you know, we were able to have a really good trials year. I felt like we, we actually played well in our last year, but then, you know, we weren't a team that could match up with, with Gushu's team. We just, we just didn't have it in the lineup that we, we had, you know, we could give them a game, but we just couldn't beat them regularly, which is what you need to do if you want to win the uh, Tim Hortons trials. Tell me a little bit about uh, another teammate uh, of yours on that team who's retiring this year, Colin Hodgson, or, or at least stepping away for a while from the game. You know, I think uh, obviously a great character. You played with him for a long time. What do you think Colin sort of brought to you and, and to the game in general? Uh, you know, I think a, a lot of people think of him very, very fondly as he as he steps away for at least a little bit here. This is still going to be an answer to the last question, which was like to summarize what happened with our team. I feel like Colin is the biggest component to us, like realizing that there's more to life than curling and just what we can achieve in curling that's not actually on the ice is something that he definitely inspired in all of us on the team. So, you know, I feel like we're better people because we curled with Colin. Like I focus heavily on the camps. He focused heavily on like obviously mental health and, and being like a support to people. And I feel like we all, you know, instead of just being so gung ho on like results and winning, we spent more time being concerned or just about people in general. And I would say that that's just because of Colin. And what a great, legacy to leave in, in your teammates and, and in the game, for sure. You have a new teammate now, Brad Jacobs. You've talked a lot about uh, teaming up with Brad on on other programs, uh, even on this channel on Inside Curling. So I won't get too deep into it, but I am curious. You guys have played a couple events together now. You're in the middle of one right now, the Champions Cup. Going ahead into next year, what do you think you will be able to bring the best out of in Brad? And what do you think he will be able to bring the best out of in you? Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like, you know, where we are both now in our curling careers, we're both like trying to accomplish the same thing. We're both, you know, not wanting to um, retire just yet. We still feel like we have uh, a lot in the sport to prove. You know, for him, he's got this like new challenge of like playing a different position. Something that, you know, he's talked about wanting to do before. You know, he he said, look, like I'm I'm done skipping. And I feel like, He's going to be focusing on trying to bring out the best in me. And he is a fantastic teammate. And even from just playing in a couple of events already, I feel the support. I feel the love. I feel like he's got my back, you know, and just like his energy and his aura, he's almost got like this aura about him. You know, he's got that intensity and he's definitely not as intense as he was like, you know, circa Sochi, you know, where he's like, sure. you know, the like, you know, out there, but he still has like that, you know, I call him Colonel Cups because like even he was wearing like these camel pants around and like, he's got like that, like almost like this militant style energy. And it's like, it's intense. And I'm kind of almost more in like the opposite spectrum, but I do feel like when I'm a little bit intense on the ice, it's like, it's the best version of myself. So I feel like 
we're almost like a good balance of like what we both need because he might be almost too intense sometimes and I'm like on the opposite level and I feel like if we both can be here it's it's going to be fun to see. I'm excited to see it. I mean we've already seen some of it so far but I'm excited to see what a full off season of preparation and all of that is, is going to do for you guys. Yeah and, and uh, yeah we like we obviously have some catch up to do. I remember at the start of the season, like we had spent time in the summer throwing rocks with Jason, uh, Derek and, and Connor, and it paid dividends because we had a great start to our year. And then, you know, teams kind of played catch up, but those were teams that like hadn't been spending the time in the summer. We had a good jump on the teams and now we're playing catch up because, you know, we're adding a new player and we're trying to learn things about each other that's, you know, going to help us be more consistent because we still have like the oh wow we got to get some reps in because i'm still not exactly sure what to expect from a certain throw or a certain situation out of brad and vice versa even for line calling for me so we're in like that learning stage but we're gonna work hard this summer and we're gonna want to kick some butt come fall i can't wait it's gonna be great okay last one put your coat let's put your coaching toque on you know you've obviously been coaching carrie anderson now for the last few years it's been going very well you can't stop winning stuff uh, which is very impressive and i wanted to ask you specifically about your timeout style uh because i love it and i know a lot of curling fans love it you know you you come out there you're very abrupt you just say look these are the two or three options here's what it is you give your opinion you talk a little bit but it is very it's a distinctive style and I'm yeah. curious was that something that you worked together with Carrie and the team on or was that just sort of your kind of default style and and it just kind of worked for everybody how did that kind of come together because I feel like it's different than almost what everybody else does so for one I'm gonna send you privately the screenshots of the people that hate the style <laughs> because there's been lots of people that have said the opposite but like just honestly, the other day I was walking around my neighborhood with my dog and I had my headphones in and some guy stopped me and started talking, hey, you know, you're done for the summer. I said, no, like I have this slam coming up. He goes, oh, that's great. You know, good luck. You're playing with Brad. I said, yeah, I got Brad. He goes, are you coach? I said, yeah, I'm coach. He goes, oh, because I love your coaching style. So like I do get that a lot. But here's the interesting <laughs> thing. All it was is I went up to them and I said, like, ladies, what would you like me to do during timeouts? I asked them what they wanted to hear. And they said, look, we don't want you to come out and like sit there and stand there and wait, like have us feed you the options and then have you pick one or suggest something like we have a minute 30, come out and tell us what to play and how to make it. That's legit just what it is. And I'm like, sometimes I'll make a suggestion to a call. And I can tell that the thrower may not love it. So then I have to try to be quick to figure out like what the person was seeing first, what their first thought was, and then change the tune and try to get them to buy into that shot. Because now, you know, I've told them that I like another one, you know, they're seeing something different. But then by that point, if they're seeing something different, I totally buy into their call. And then it becomes trying to make that shot for them because honestly the best shot that's going to be made is the one that you see and you just make right but for them like it requires them to just fully give me the trust like when i'm watching you know i'm literally trying to see how the ends are shaping out and playing out i don't do some of the things that some of the other coaches do i focus more on the strategy just to like try to come out and be prepared for that moment. You know, I try to focus a little bit on the like the line and the sheet and the way that things are playing throughout the game, but you know, I don't do as much tracking as what some of the other coaches do. I almost try to act more like a skip 
when I'm out there coaching and it's been, you know, I know from talking to Carrie and the ladies, like they appreciate that because it's helped them in certain situations for sure. And, uh, you know, there's times that I'm not right when I come out and make a shot call, but like I do my best to like call the shot that I think they need to make and then just try to, you know, encourage them on how to do it. I love it. I will say my favorite criticism that I've seen you get online is when people say that you mansplain the shot to carry. Oh, my God. I love that because uh, uh, I don't know if people understand, but you're a coach. That's literally your job. I, <laughs> but I do like that. Reed comes out and mansplains the shot to carry. Oh, my God. It literally it literally has nothing to do with that. <laughs> no, of course not. Of course. Not. Honestly, I'm glad that Carrie plays the women's game because I wouldn't want to play against that team. <laughs> They're so good. Yeah. There's so many, like so many of these teams that are unbelievable. I'm, I'm happy that we don't have to play against them regularly. Like <laughs> totally, yeah. It has nothing to do with what I would play or what. Like it's, it's more like, hey, you know, Carrie, you need to make this shot. This is going to help you win the game. That's it. It's very funny. Um, okay, we're going to move on to our second to last segment, which we call very difficult own career trivia. This is where I ask you questions about your own curling career, and uh, we'll see how much you remember. Okay. I feel like you've got a shot here. I don't know. You, you, you're a pretty analytical guy. I'll, I'll say the high score right now is three out of five. I'm going to go six for five. <laughs> You'll, you're just going to absolutely destroy it. This is a teacher right here who wants to get uh, bonus points. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Question number one. At the 2003 Canadian Juniors, you only had one of your games go to an extra end. Which skip was it against? Oh, boy. Sherard. No, it was BC, Jason Montgomery. Oh, Jason. Yeah, okay. I should have known that with you being from there. should have known you were going there. I like to slide in my BC folks uh, whenever I can. Uh, so six for five off the table, but you off could still table. get you could still get four for five here. Yeah. Uh, so at the 2011 Manitoba Provincials, in which you won, and then obviously you went on to win the worlds, you and your front end mate Steve Gould both were first all stars. Who was the first all star skip? And I'll give you a hint: it was not Jeff. Uh, okay. The thing is, though, like these were these were voted on by the media, and they have nothing to do with stats. So like this is, this question doesn't really count for anything. Like this is like a personal opinion. In another way, it does very much count because uh, it is in the history books and I'm asking you about it. Uh. So. But I do think I'll say this. I'll give you a hint. Your instinct is right. It's like a skip that had maybe a surprisingly good provincials that year. I'm drawing a blank. No, I don't know. All right, it was Terry McNamee. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's actually currently working for Derek Samagolski in a golf course. Amazing. At the Carberry yeah. uh, still? Is that where Derek is still? Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he lost the 3-4 game that year. Okay. So I think the media were like, oh, well, he's, you know, well, good for he's the all-star. Good for Terry. Okay, back to the Manitoba Provincials. At the 2015 Manitoba Provincials, your first provincial win as a skip, you fell down to the B side. You had to win three straight games to qualify for the round of eight. Name any of the three skips you beat. Ramsey. Ramsey is right. Yes, you beat Ramsey in the B final. Yeah. yeah. It was uh, Andy Stewart. Yeah. Trevor Lorith. Yeah, okay. Scott Ramsey. Yeah. Okay, so you got one. You got, And you can still tie the top score for three out of five. So here we go. Question four. At the 2016 Canada Cup, you played Brad Guju twice. And actually, it was Team Guju because Brad was not there. Uh, you played them twice. You won once and you lost once. 
In both games, the losing team scored the same number of points. How many points was it? I'm going to say five. So close. Six. Oh, I was, that's my, that was my gut. And then I yes, thought six is actually a lot to give up, so I said five. Shoot. You lost to them 7-6 in the round robin, yeah. and you beat them 8-6 to six in the final. Yeah. And they had Charlie Thomas playing third. Mark skipped. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, okay, last question. Uh, a chance to go out on a winning note. I have faith in you in this one, I think. At the 2017 World Mixed Doubles, Canada panicked because you drew Scotland in the round of 16 in the playoffs. The male playing for Scotland was Bruce Mowat. Who was his partner? Gina Aitken. Gina Aitken. There you go. Two for five. Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight, but okay. <laughs> they were great. They were great questions. Okay. So what was the other question that you probably had that you decided not to use on the program? In terms of what? The trivia question? Yeah. No, you had to. You didn't just come up with five. I guarantee you had six and then you just <laughs> you decided on the five. So what's what's the six? I did decide on the five. Yeah. I had an alternate question if you were doing really good. You had to beat Latvia technically to qualify. So I was going to get you to name. That's the, actually a really good team. I was going to get you to name the Latvian players because I figured that'd oh, be harder no than. Chance. Yeah, I, I figured that'd be harder than naming Gina yeah. Aitken. And I can't have anybody go five for five on my program. So his name was probably Igor. <laughs> very possible. Yeah, very possible. Um, OK, uh, this is the final segment of the show. The extra end. This is where the question actually comes from my previous guest read. Uh, my past guest on the show was Carrie Galusha. And I have to be honest with you. This is a pretty potentially spicy question. Uh, but this is this is coming from Carrie, not me. So don't shoot the messenger. I love Carrie. So it's OK. She's the best. And I'll say this, too. She did not specify that it has to be about curling. So you can answer this. However you want to, if you want to answer it about curling, you may, but you can choose to answer non-curling. But her question is, what opportunity did you turn down but now wish you had accepted? Ooh. I will say that I had to make a decision to step away from teaching to curl. I'm not saying that like I regret that decision because I would still do it again. But there is times where I have thought like, look, like what would that life have been like? Because I had the dream job and I was on term and I was going to be likely offered the job again because my principal was happy with me and said, look, like you should apply for this. And normally that's a good sign when your administrator yep. says that. Definitely. I knew that after one more term, you know, that I probably would have got that job full time. And so, yeah, I would say that like... There are, there are times where I think about that, like being that full-time teacher and being at home, because sometimes the travel, it gets to you. Absolutely. Especially with the places you have to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no doubt about that. Well, thank you, Reed. Uh, this was such a pleasure uh, to sit down and chat with you. This was a blast. Uh, best of luck the rest of the week at the Champions Cup and into next season. Yeah, thanks very much. So there you have it, Reed Carruthers. Thank you so much for tuning in to Way Inside every second Thursday. I believe we have one more episode left this season, and then we're packing it up. We're taking the show on the road. Just kidding. There will be no show, and I won't be on the road. I'll be golfing or 
swimming or I don't know, what are some summer activities you guys do? I, I don't know. I don't know what happens when my life has no curling. I lose all sense of time. But thank you to Reed Carruthers for that amazing chat. Thank you to everyone here at Sportsnet. Mike Rogerson, the producer, Amal Delich, Griffin Porter, Kevin Warren, Jim, everybody at Sportsnet for uh, helping me out once again to get this 11th. Can you believe it? We're already at 11 episodes of this show out to you. As I said, one more coming to you two Thursdays from now. So please Stay tuned for that one. Subscribe to the Inside Curling feed. You can follow me for more of my curling takes at Cullen on Curling. I also have a newsletter. Probably going to do one more of those as well before the summer uh, kicks into high gear. You know, answer some of your questions. Uh, so yeah, if you listen to this show and you got questions for me, follow me on Twitter. You can ask me questions there. I answer them on my Substack. It's CullenOnCurling.substack.com. Until next time, remember, if you're going to be inside... Be way inside.